happy uh, last uh, September, last Sunday in September, I guess I should say. Maybe this will be our last September. We were just singing, weren't we, uh, about the, the rapture. If we could take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 34 and verse 1. The title of our lesson this morning is entitled False Love. False Love. I have to be honest with you, this uh, chapter, um, this is the pain of being a verse-by-verse Bible teacher. I would just sort of, hopefully this isn't too blasphemous to say, I would just sort of assume skip this chapter. But it's part of God's uh, written record to us. It's got some important information. And uh, as we've been progressing verse-by-verse through the book of Genesis, we are learning about a very special nation that God is raising up, the nation of Israel. Jacob, who is the principal character in these chapters, has left Haran up north. It's time for him to return to the land of his nativity. And so last week at the end of chapter 33, we saw Jacob arrive in Canaan in an area or a city called Shechem. Shechem is where these um, events take place. And then a horrific uh, crime, violent act, occurs against a very young girl, a young woman, And so we see this here in chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. All of these verses dealing with what we would call the Dinah incident. And we see here the horrific crime, violent crime of rape being committed against a Jewish, um, a Jewish person now in the land of Canaan. We have the occasion, the rapist and the rape, the rapist's love for Dinah, which I put in quotes because it's obviously not biblical love. Jacob's discovery of what happens, the father of the rapist approaches Jacob, and then you see the response of the brothers there in verse 7. But notice, uh, first of all, the occasion, um, chapter 34 and verse 1. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. So who is uh, Dinah? You remember Dinah's birth all the way back in Genesis 30, verses 20 and 21. It says, then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him, that son number six, Zebulun. This is the origin of Israel's 12 tribes. And then it says, Genesis 30, verse 21, after she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. So who is Dinah? Um, There's kind of a... Uh, family tree, if you will, of the 12 tribes and where they came from. Leah has six sons through Jacob. And now you have a seventh child born, a daughter named Dinah. There's going to be reaction to what happens to Dinah by Simeon and Levi And you can see why they reacted, because they are not half-brothers to Dinah. They are full brothers, based on this uh, family tree. But it says in chapter 34, verse 1, second part of the verse, Dinah went out to visit the daughters of the land. This is the first time we have a Jewess 
someone from this group that's going to be later identified as the nation of Israel having contact with the Canaanites. So as she kind of leaves the protective care of the family there in Shechem, we see a crime of violence being committed against her, verse uh, 2. It says, When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. We have the rapist. The rapist's name is Shechem. The city, of course, um, bears that same name, Shechem. Who is he? Uh, he is the son of Hamor, the Hivite, it says. Who are the Hivites? Well, in the Bible, we read about the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites, the Hamathites, the Parasites, the Hivites, the Electric Lights, <laughs> the Termites, and the Out of Sights, and the Mosquito Bites. Uh, who, who are who are these people? Well, when we trace things back to Genesis chapter nine, verses twenty through twenty-six, this Canaanite group is of the corrupt lineage of Ham. Ham then leading to Canaan, Canaan leading to this group, who did something disrespectful to Noah. We covered this when we were in Genesis chapter 9. Uncovered and observed his father's nakedness. We're not sure exactly what that was. We did some sermons on it, what, about 20 years ago? Something like that. And this group came from that line, Ham's line, and that's, that's where they settled in the land of Canaan. And they were put under a curse because of what happened in Genesis 9. The curse, of course, has nothing to do with race. The curse has to do with the fact that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. If Ham is going to indulge in sort of perhaps immoral and unethical behavior, then you can't expect his descendants to be that much different. And that's who these Canaanites were. They settled there in the, what later would become the land of Israel. God gave these people centuries to repent until finally God said that's enough in the book of Joshua and sent in jo- General Joshua and under divine command exterminated the Canaanites. These are all parts of your Bible that need explanation, and we'll be giving those as we were going through. But we're far before that point in time. This is that wicked generation that continues to occupy the land of Canaan. That's who Shechem came from. Shechem, of course, is the son of Hamor. Hamor is one of these ites, the Hivite. And you'll notice that it says of Shechem, the rapist, that he was the prince of the land. You know, being the prince of the land, probably when you're born into privilege, uh, you probably think to yourself that you're entitled to do things that you shouldn't do. This, All of this, of course, becomes very instructive as you're contemplating marriage. A young person, perhaps contemplating marriage, You don't want to marry, obviously, someone that has this entitlement mentality, who thinks that they're somehow special and the ordinary rules of life don't apply to them and they can get away with whatever they want to get away with. In this case, it's the horrific and violent crime of rape. This also becomes part of the explanation as to why God is going to get his people out of Canaan in the days of Joseph, into Egypt. And he's going to incubate them in a place called Goshen in Egypt um, for about 400 years. And then he'll perform the exodus, lead them out through the Red Sea as it's parted, 
give them the law at Mount Sinai, and eventually they will make it into the land of Canaan under Joshua. Why did God, and as we're going to be reading in the book of Genesis, why is God going to all the trouble to get his people out of Canaan? Because his people would have become just like the Canaanites morally. The Bible says um, bad company corrupts good morals. Be careful who you're running around with. As my father used to tell me, don't let your friends pick you. You pick your friends. Because the people that you run around with and the people that you hang out with, uh, eventually their morality is going to influence you more than your morality is going to influence them. And the nation of Israel would have become just another wicked Canaanite group had the Lord allowed them to stay in Canaan, but he will raise up Joshua to get them out of the land of Canaan. And why God has to get his people out of the land of Canaan, you get an explanation of here in Genesis 34. How wicked were these people? Very wicked. And then when we get to Genesis 38, assuming we will get to that this side of the rapture, because this could be our last September, amen, you get a further explanation as to why the Canaanites are so wicked to the point where God has to remove his people from Canaan into Egypt. So chapter 34 and chapter 38, they sort of furnish a defense, an apologetic, if you will, of what is coming later as God is going to raise up Joseph for the purpose of getting the nation of Israel out of Canaan. So this man, Shechem, this rapist, is called the the prince of the land. And as you look there at the second part of verse 2, you see the, the crime of rape taking place. It says, When Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, that's Dinah, he took her, and lay with her by force. So he saw her. He took her. And he lay with her. Now, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this concerning the Hebrew in verse 2. He took her. Then he lay with her. The Hebrew text does not use the indirect object for her which shows that Dinah was violated by force, not by consent. The indirect form is also used in Genesis chapter 39, verse 7, where Potiphar's wife wanted sexual intercourse with Joseph. So just as Potiphar's wife is going to force herself on Joseph, this is the same type of thing that's happening here. So you probably didn't know your Bible was this um, intriguing with all of these plot turns and twists. I mean, you don't have to watch soap operas anymore. Just read your Bible. You get all of this, you know, dark, (laughs) sort of scary history. And it says here that he, some of the versions read, he, that's Shechem to Dinah, humbled her. What does that mean, humbled her? Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says he humbled her. The Hebrew word here means to humble, to defile, and to afflict. Interestingly, the same word is used in Genesis 15, verse 13. But here it has the meaning to rape, and she was raped. Genesis 15, verse 13 describes what the Egyptians would do to the nation of Israel. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, for they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Enslaved and oppressed is the same idea or word that's used here as Shechem has now forced himself on Dinah. And then what happens is the rapist admits his love for Dinah. Obviously, I put love in quotes because this is not true love, the way the Bible defines love. And that's in verses 3 and 4. Notice verse 3. He, Shechem, was deeply attracted to Dinah, 
the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So it's um, almost the opposite of what's going to happen with Ammon and Tamar, a rape that takes place in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14. It says over there, however, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Then Ammon hated her, that's the rape victim, with a very great hatred. For the hatred with which he hated was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Ammon said, that is to Tamar, get up and go away. So after that incident of rape, there's going to be hate by the rapist towards the victim. This seems to be something almost the opposite. He, he rapes her, he violates her, and then he finds himself, you know, attracted and drawn to her. As I'm reading this, it seems like he has her imprisoned in his own house for a season. I think that'll become clearer as we progress through the through the chapter. But this is why I entitled this message False Love. Because it does say here in verse 3 that he loved her. One of the things that's really important to understand is in the Greek language, this would be New Testament, the Greeks had four different words for love. The first word is storgos, which refers to love within a family, a parent's love for their child, for example. And then there is a different word for love called filio, um, which is brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia is named after that, by the way. Adelphia uh, brother, filio Love, the city of brotherly love. I always get a chuckle out of that because they have one of the greatest uh, murder rates in the United States, but we won't go into that, I guess. Then there is something called eros, which is sort of sexual love, sexual lust. And I think this is what Shechem had towards Dinah. And then the Bible says there's something called agape which is the highest form of love that is completely focused on the other person and they're good. Lust can't wait to get. Agape can't wait to give. Agape is the description of God's love for us. You see it role modeled very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it does not take into account a a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Very important information because we have in our church, praise the Lord, many younger people that are either contemplating marriage or very soon in their lives will be doing so. And they're going to run into people that say, I love you. And our society throws this word love around all of the time. Most of us don't even know what it means. Most of us think we're experts on it because we used to watch the show, The Love Boat. (laughs) You know, love this, love that. You have to understand biblically what love is. Love is always demonstrated by its wisdom. Love is always demonstrated by its actions. What you see happening here is not patience. It's not kindness. Um, it's not unbe- unbecoming because that's what it is, this rape scene. True love does not keep a record of wrongs. If you're with somebody and they're very quick to remind you of every bad thing you've ever done, they're not operating out of love. Love is patient. I wouldn't marry anybody unless you drive with them in traffic. 
to be honest with you. Because how they act in traffic is pretty much a revelation of their true character. That's when the truth about us comes out. I mean, I mean, this is any everything and anything but the love described in the Bible. So this is not agape. What Dinah Shechem is experiencing towards Dinah. At the very best, this could be considered eros, eros love. The truth of the matter is if you marry someone that doesn't exhibit agape love, not a perfect person, because there are none, but is not growing in the area of agape love, then you're marrying someone that doesn't have the capacity to love you the way God designed you to be loved. God designed you to be loved sacrificially and selflessly. That is how God loves us. And the person that he will bring into your life via marriage will exhibit that, those character qualities. It doesn't matter what uh, language that they use. It doesn't matter how cute you think they are. It doesn't matter how much money they make. It doesn't matter what kind of car they drive, what kind of career they have, what their upward mobility is. What matters is do they exhibit this characteristic of love? The Bible doesn't leave us in the dark on this. It's there in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. And I'm here to tell you that what is happening here, I mean, the word love can be used, but that's that's not agape love. But Shechem, after raping Dinah, expresses his intention to marry her, marrying her. And you see that there in verse uh, 4. So Shechem spoke to his father. Hamor saying, get me this girl for a wife. Sounds like a man of great patience, right? Get her for me. Kind of reminds me of Samson, who was involved in a lot of these kinds of relationships. Uh, Samson was a he-man with a she-problem. Let's just put it that way. And uh, in Judges 14, verse 2, it says of Samson, So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah. I saw her, in other words, which is lust, not love. I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Well, there's a problem because Jews are not supposed to intermarry with the Philistines. Then he says to his, his uh, father, Get her for me for a wife. So anybody that's in a massive hurry to rush to the altar, that's um, a red flag, to be frank with you. Because love, by its very definition, is, is patient. Of course, you don't want to wait too long, as some do. <laughs> but this whole impulse, I've got to have this person. I've got to have them now. Um, what does the Bible say about love? It says, it says love is patient. Obviously, Shechem, the way he's acting here, is not demonstrating true love towards Dinah. Certainly, rape has nothing to do with the love of God. As you probably know, in Islam, a husband has a right to rape his wife. I can actually show you places in the Islamic documents that teach that. And, of course, a woman, to counteract a man's testimony in Islamic court, Sharia law, she has to have more than one witness to counteract his single witness. Just keep that in mind as the Islamic presence continues to grow in the United States and they keep demanding their own judicial system parallel to our own. If that should ever happen, it will take us back into the dark ages any type of progress that we've made legally in terms of equal rights will be quickly and speedily erased. So Shechem rapes Dinah and wants to marry her. Jacob, Dinah's father, finds out about this. You see his discovery, verse 5. Now Jacob heard that they that they had defiled Dinah, his daughter. 
So apparently what happened was now public knowledge. Which explains the reaction of Simeon and Levi against the whole town later on in the chapter. It's almost like the whole town is responsible for what transpired here because everybody knew about it and where are the authorities stopping it? It, it didn't, it didn't happen. It wasn't halted. It wasn't stopped. The, the perpetrator was not punished probably because he's the prince and can do whatever he wants. The discovery leads to the circumstances, verse 5. But her sons, his sons rather, were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob's dozen, his 12 sons, in fact there's 11 sons because Benjamin hasn't been born. He's not going to be born until Genesis 35. Um, were out in the field and they didn't fully understand what had happened yet, and so Jacob is waiting for his sons to come back so he can share what just happened to Dinah. So it says there in verse 5, end of the verse, so Jacob kept silent until they came in. Apparently the sons were going to be involved in the decision-making process concerning what are we going to do. Jacob is not handling this whole situation on his own. And this is where Hamor, the father of the rapist now approaches Jacob. And you see that in verse 6. It says, When Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob, excuse me, then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So Hamor approaches Jacob with a purpose. Hamor, the father, is now speaking with Jacob, another father, about Dinah, Jacob's daughter, on behalf of Shechem, his son. And then all of this is revealed to the brothers, who have now come in from the field there in verse 7, and you can see their reaction. Now the sons of Jacob came in from the field where they heard it, when they heard it, and look at these words here, the men were grieved, And they were angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing ought not to be done. What is the reaction of these brothers? Number one, they're grieved. Number two, they're angry. In other words, we've got to avenge this situation. Now, what's interesting is you travel through the Bible, there's going to come up later on in biblical history after the nation has conquered the land and the Canaanites have been removed, they're going to be setting up what are called cities of refuge. There's going to be three um, west of the Jordan, three in the Transjordan, east of the Jordan, And these cities of refuge are very interesting. Moses lays them out in conspicuous detail. And it has to do with somebody that is accused of criminal behavior. But the facts haven't come in yet. When we feel like a crime has been committed, yet we don't have all the information, that can lead very fast to vigilantism, where people are just, they just do what's right in their own eyes. And that could lead to a rush to judgment. To prevent that from happening, Moses said, here's how it's going to work. We're going to set up six cities, three in the west, three in the east. And that way, someone who is accused of a crime, yet their guilt has not yet been proven, can flee into those cities. And once they enter the city, they're safe. It's like a safe zone. And they can remain there until we get all the facts, until we get all the the data, until we determine that such and such a person really did commit a crime. And there is the beginning of the belief that's very common in our legal system, innocent until what? Proven guilty. It's um, a very advanced legal concept. We take it for granted. But Moses is spelling it all out there. In his writings, a lot of people will look at the writings of Moses and they'll say, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Oh, all that's that's so antiquated. 
that's such a lower standard of morality. And I'm here to tell you that that viewpoint is absolute nonsense. The law of Moses introduces a level of sophistication that you don't find in any other legal system of Moses' general era. It's all vigilantism. In fact, I believe it's in the Code of Hammurabi that this is how they determined if someone was guilty or innocent. That They took him and they threw him into a flowing river. And if they survive, they must be innocent. If they drown, then they must be guilty. I mean, compare that to the Bible. The Bible says if you're accused of a crime, you better get out of Dodge because a lot of people are going to react emotionally and you need to get inside one of these cities for protective care until we can analyze the facts in an objective, unemotional way and determine if criminal penalties need to be assessed or not. Now, you'll notice that one of these cities is in Shechem where this event here is transpiring. And it may be for that reason that Moses said one of those cities needs to be in Shechem because of the overreaction that we're going to see later on in the chapter from Simeon and Levi against all of the inhabitants of this town. So I just bring that to um, to your attention. So the brothers are grieved. The brothers are angry. They're, they make a statement here about how this is disgraceful. Some of your English translations will translate that word disgraceful as folly. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes concerning the expression, he, that Shechem, had done folly in Israel. First, the word folly refers to a godless act that polluted the family and eventually results in the breakup of existing relationships between the tribes and between family members and between God and man. The word used is navala, which appears 13 times in the Hebrew text, and eight of those times it's used of sexual crimes. And there's all of the Bible verses there in parenthesis. This means that the crime was in lying with Jacob's daughter by force. That's why that word folly is used. And something else that's very interesting is you'll notice the use of the word Israel. They were angry because nothing had been, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel. This is the first time that the word Israel is used for the whole group. We've seen the word Israel before, where Jacob's name, I think it's back in chapter 32, was changed to Israel. But now the word Israel is applied to Jacob, his two wives, his two maids, and the twelve, including Dinah, that come forth from that relationship those relationships, the beginning of Israel's 12 tribes. The word Israel is now applied to this entire group. So what you're starting to see for the first time is Israel is a distinct entity in contrast to the Canaanite people groups that they were habiting amongst. And we would expect a development on this because, after all, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, right? The beginning of the universe, beginning of life, beginning of man, beginning of marriage, beginning of evil, the beginning of clothing, religion, salvation, language, government, nations. We wouldn't know anything about these subjects if we didn't have the book of Genesis. And the theme that's being traced here is the beginning of Israel, God's special nation. And the reason that nation is special and the reason that history is being, this history of that nation is being recorded for us is because God is going to bless the world through this nation. And this is the first time the word Israel is used not of an individual, but the whole group, the whole family, extended family, etc. gets this name Israel. 
And they simply say here, these brothers, this, this ought not to be done. This ought, this ought not to be done to God's special nation. Back to the Ammon and Tamar incident, when that rape occurred, the same thing will be said in 2 Samuel 13.12. But he answered him, No, my brothers, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel, and do not do this disgraceful thing. And so now what happens is you have negotiations, if you will, for Dinah. You see that there in verses 8 through 17. You see Hamor's offers to Jacob, verses 8 through 12. You see Shechem's, the rapist's, his request, verses 11 and 12. And then you receive the response of the brothers, verses 13 through 17. Notice Hamor's offers as now Hamor approaches Jacob. The father of the rapist approaches the father of the one whose daughter had been raped is what's happening here. Verse 8, it says, But Hamor spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. That's not agape love at all. At best, it's Eros love. Please give her to him in marriage. So you see Hamor um, communing with Jacob. The basis of this communing is the son wants to marry the daughter that he had just raped, and he makes this request. Give her to my son as his wife. Hamor also makes an offer of intermarriage. Verse 9, intermarry with us. In other words, you're a separate group within Canaanite territory. Let's all just marry each other. Let's have our children intermarry with one another. Uh, Verse 9, it says, intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us. And take our daughters for yourselves. Now, that's not going to happen, as we're going to see. And the reason that's not going to happen, and the reason this history is recorded for us, is God never, 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 did I say never enough? Never wanted the Israelites to intermarry with the Canaanites. In fact, that's why Abram sent his servant away out of Canaan to get a wife for Isaac. This is why Jacob meets his wives in Haran, up north, outside of Canaanite territory. Because God understands who these Canaanites are. Does he love them? Of course. Did he give them time to repent? Of course. But he understood their core character going back to Ham. And he specifically said that if you intermarry with them... Essentially what's going to happen is they're going to influence you more than you're going to influence them. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament says don't be unequally yoked. What is a yoke? A yoke is a a harness, if you will, that went over two animals. And if one animal was stronger than another, the stronger would have greater influence over the weak. And so as Christians, we are in the world for sure. But we are not to put ourselves in positions where someone of a different value system can influence us in the form of an intimate relationship. Most people apply that to marriage, but it applies to any relationship. A business relationship, a banking relationship, someone you take a loan out from and promise to pay them back. Of course, we would apply this to marriage because at the end of the day, if I'm standing up on a chair and you're, you have your feet on the ground and we're both holding hands, I'm holding your two hands, you're holding my two hands, even though I'm six foot six and a half, 
your ability to pull me off the chair is much easier than it is for me to pull you onto the chair. Because you have the forces of gravity working in your favor. That is the whole point about do not be unequally yoked. Young people constantly go into these marriages with the intention of, well, I'm going to fix or save her. Or the her says, I'm going to fix or save him. Well, at least you got the her and him correct. Um, And if you don't have that correct, we might have to talk after the service. But it's this idea, you know, we used to call it back in the day, missionary dating. I mean, what's wrong with dating, you know, some unsaved people? Because after all, I could share Jesus with them. The problem is you're putting yourself in an intimate relationship with someone where they could influence you. And consequently, you've become unequally yoked. And all you got to do is talk to the people that have gone down that road. Just talk to them. Don't don't take my word for it. Don't take the preacher's word for it. Talk to people that have tried to live that out. It is a long, difficult, arduous road. And typically it does not work out in the end. There are those cases where it does. Praise the Lord for that. But typically it does not work out. So don't, as a young person, put yourself in that kind of position. Wait on the Lord. Because he has something far better for you. You know, the problem is we just don't want to wait on the Lord in that area. That's really the issue. Hey, I've got these needs. I want to be married. It's like young people saying, I hope the rapture doesn't happen this year. Well, why not? Well, I want to get married. Then they get married and a year passes and they come back and they say, what was that rapture stuff you were talking about? <laughs> we, we so easily put ourselves into positions where we think we could save someone, we, th- we think we could fix some, some, someone. I'll persuade them, I'll bring them over to my side. You know, after all, we have so much in common. Well, what do you have in common? I mean, if they're an unbeliever, they're going to hell, you're going to heaven. They're a goat, you're a sheep. You're wheat, they're a tare. You're, you're on the narrow road leading to life, they're on the broad road leading to destruction. What do you really have in common? Well, we share the same sign. You know, we're both Scorpios and we both like crossword puzzles. You know, the truth is, with an unbeliever, you have nothing in common with them. You you don't contemplate marrying an unbeliever. And let me even put it a step further. You don't even contemplate marrying someone that is a Christian that is what we would call an immature Christian or a carnal Christian. Marriage is difficult enough without dealing with that kind of issue. Wait on the Lord. The Lord knows what's going on in your life. Give your life to the Lord in a consecrated way. He'll bring the right person at the right time. But the issue is we don't like God's timing because it's not my timing. I want God to be on Christian standard time, which is my time. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work according to our schedule. You know, there's a lot of things that God wants to give you in your life that if he gave them to you now, they would probably destroy you. So he waits till you reach a certain level of maturity before he gives them to you. You know, as my daughter is learning to drive, she's doing very well at it, by the way. Much better than I did when I was her age. But it's an age-appropriate activity. It's not something that at age five, hey, here's the keys. Let's take the car out for a spin. I mean, it's just not, she's not at the point to do it yet. That's how life is. Life will be executed according to God's timing. And it's the same with this issue of marriage. But people are in such a rush. And so this is the offer of this man, Hamor, let's, let's intermarry. 
Over in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, when the nation of Israel will finally come out of Egypt and brought to Mount Sinai, this is what God thinks about intermarrying with the Canaanites. He says later in biblical history, Deuteronomy 7 and verse 1, after you clear away the many nations that were before you, the Hittites, the the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, he says in verse 3, Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. This is the opposite of what Hamor is offering here. And if the nation of Israel had followed what Hamor wanted to do, the nation of Israel would have lost its cultural identity. Something that God wanted to remain intact because he wanted a separate and distinct nation through which to bless the world. Genesis 12 and verse 3. But Hamor is really offering quite a bit because he also offers them citizenship. Thus you shall live with us and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. In other words, if you do what I would like you to do, give Dinah to Shechem and let's just intermarry, then I'll also throw in a free offer of citizenship, something that the patriarchs never had. They never had citizenship in the land of Canaan. They had been promised by God that one day they would inherit all of the land and more. But in the interim, they had to wait on God to fulfill the promise because they were a minority population within the land. All of these cities were Canaanite city-states. The patriarchs were nothing more than nomads. And you could see how greatly they would desire to be part of Canaan. And so you can see how tempting uh, Hamor's offer is here. Kind of like us, we're in the world, but not of the world. We march according to a different value system that the world functions functions at or with. And the world is always offering us an invitation. Come join. Come be a part of the club. Why make life difficult? All you got to do is compromise on this principle over here. Just laugh at the dirty joke at the office. What's the big deal? Hey, come out with us Sunday to go to the ball game or whatever when the Holy Spirit is saying you need to be in church. It's just a little compromise. What's the big deal? Come and join. That's how the world system works. And then we foolishly join with the world system only to discover that the system really was not all it was cracked up to be. And we need to repent and get right with the Lord. Just worldliness. You go down to verses 11 and 12 and you see Shechem, the rapist, actually is speaking up and making uh, his uh, request. They're actually somewhat generous. Uh, Verse 11 through most of verse 12, it says Shechem as Hamor is meeting with Jacob concerning Dinah. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, if I find favor in your sight, then I will give you whatever you say to me. Ask me ever so much bridal payment and gift, and I will give you accord, I will give according as you say to me. End of verse 12. But give me the girl in marriage. I think what he's saying here is I'm not going to ask for a a dowry. The only thing I really want is Dinah. So this probably looked like a very generous offer. And I'm here to tell you that if if the nation of Israel at this point had taken the bait, they may have lost their distinctiveness as a people group. 
as they intermarried with the Canaanites. You would not have a distinct Israel anymore. And if you don't have a distinct Israel anymore, then how can God use that nation to bless the world? Genesis 12, verse 3. This may have even somehow inhibited. I know in the foreknowledge of God and the sovereignty of God, his plan will always be executed correctly, but in the human way of thinking, it could have inhibited the coming of Jesus to planet Earth. And now the brothers speak, the response of the brothers, verses 13 through 17. Look at how the stage is set for what's going to happen, verse 13. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor with deceit because he, that Shechem, had violated Dinah, their sister. The brothers who have now come in the field, learned of the situation, are now leading the negotiations. It's almost like Jacob is taking a back seat here and noticing that they're functioning with guile, with deceit. When you get to the end of this chapter, Jacob, the father, is not going to be happy with what they did. And the Bible is not condoning what they did by way of response. I'll explain why that's true a little down the road. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to trick Shechem into a situation where they can take his life because of the violent crime of rape that Shechem committed against their sister Dinah. And what you're going to start seeing described here in Genesis 34 is what we would call descriptive narrative, not prescriptive. You have to learn to distinguish the two because what people will say all the time is, oh, how could you believe the Bible? Look at look at what these two brothers did. When in reality, they don't know how to distinguish between descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive is just describing what happened. Prescriptive is, thus saith the Lord, here's what you should do. Ten commandments, no idols before God, no graven images. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor my name. No, No murder, no adultery, no lying, no stealing, no coveting. The big ten, the ten commandments, that's prescriptive. When it describes people going their own way and doing what's right in their own eyes, the whole book of Judges, by the way, is a description of that, that's not saying, let's go out and do the same thing. It's describing an overreach. It's describing the nation of Israel in its sinfulness trying to rectify you know, a problem. I hope you understand that the Bible is very different than Islam. The Bible will describe things God's people do that aren't right. Islam, by contrast, will not just give a description or a prescript. It will instead give a prescription of what you're supposed to do. Islam says, find the pagans and slay them. The Bible describes God's people slaying pagans, but God never says, you ought to do this. See the difference? When an airline is hijacked and and flown into a building... If a Christian were to do that, they would be disobeying the Bible. They would be disobeying the prescriptive material in the Bible. When a Muslim does it, they are acting consistently with prescriptive commands in their own texts. That's a big difference. Because what people do is they try to say, well, fundamentalist Christianity is just as dangerous as fundamentalist Islam. And they will draw up all of these things from the Bible where God's people are doing things that are out of bounds. And it's at that point you say, no, that's not prescriptive, that's descriptive. 
That's how to be an apologist for the things of God in these last days, making that basic uh, distinction. So these brothers are going to do something that Jacob didn't want done. And what's interesting is God is not even mentioned in this chapter. Did you know that? The name God is not even found here. Arnold Fruchtenbaum compares this chapter to chapter 35. Chapter 34, what we're reading here, chapter 35 is Jacob again at Bethel. He says the third observation is to note a contrast between chapters 34 and 35 of Genesis. In chapter 34, there is absolutely no mention of God. No reference to God whatsoever. But in chapter 35, the word God will be mentioned 11 times by itself, and God's name will be found 11 more times in connection with specific names. The name of God is found 22 times in Genesis 35. It's not found a single time in Genesis 34. So God, what these brothers are going to do by way of overreaction, God never authorized. This is describing what happened and not prescribing what God's people are to do. And the Bible will read like that. The only thing the doctrine of inerrancy guarantees is that this story happened just like the Bible says. But inerrancy doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, go do this. Because it's describing and not prescribing. So what happens here is these brothers are operating by deceit or guile. They're they're setting up Shechem and this whole city for annihilation, something that God never authorized. And so they they make a demand. With the demand comes a rule, a condition, And then a contingency. First the rule. Verse 14. Then he said to them, the brothers, to Hamor, what, uh, excuse me, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. So we're a unique people going all the way back to Genesis 17 to demonstrate your connection to the Abrahamic covenant is infants on the eighth day were circumcised. So we can't just give our daughters to you uncircumcised folks. It's kind of interesting. They're using something God gave to furnish an overreaction. They're using the things of God for their own purposes. And I'm here to tell you folks, and it's sad for me to say, but the ministry world is filled with people like that. They use the things of God to promote themselves, to promote the bank accounts, to promote power. And this is why such people we don't need in ministry. What we need in ministry are people that are going to selflessly sacrifice for the flock. Feed the flock, not fleece the flock. That's why when you walk in and out of this building, as you're walking in, you'll look to the right. There's a quote there from Ezekiel 34 and verse 2, which I asked be specifically put there. And it says there, should not the shepherds feed the flock? That is why Sugarland Bible Church is here to be a blessing to you. The moment a church starts to see itself as you're here to be a blessing to the church is the moment it's not a ministry anymore. That's someone using ministry to promote some other human agenda. And so we have to watch our motives very carefully. You, you hear a lot of ministries talk, they keep pleading begging for money, and you ask yourself, well, is this a ministry? I mean, the way you keep emphasizing finances and keep emphasizing money over and over again, I get the feeling that we're here for you, not the other way around. What did Jesus say to the Apostle Peter three times? If you love me, 
more than these, feed my sheep. That's why we're here. We want to feed God's flock through God's word. We don't want to, as the Apostle Paul says, peddle the word of God for profit. These brothers, though, are using circumcision to do something that God never authorized. So uh, verse 14 is the rule. Verse 15 is the condition. He says, only on this condition will we consent if you will become like us in that every male of you be circumcised. Uh, by the way, the whole city has to be circumcised. Not just Shechem, every male of the city operating via guile. And then they lay out a contingency. Uh, if the if you accept the terms, verse 16, then we will give you our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. So you get what you want if the whole city is circumcised. What if you turn down the offer? Verse 17, if it is rejected. But if you will not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. This situation with rape, we can't vindicate supposedly. uh, So we're just going to take our daughter and we're going to go. So the condition is we will do what Hamar wants, but the whole city has to be circumcised. They're doing this under guile or deceit. Verse 13. Describing, not prescribing. I hope you understand this, that in Islam, there's something called taqiyya. It's also is a concept. It's not the same name, but it's prevalent in Marxism. No doubt Curtis Bowers, when he's here October the 8th, will cover that, or you can ask him about it. It's the idea that under taqiyya, you are allowed to lie to advance your agenda. Keep that in mind when you see Muslims running for office, wanting to enter into deals with you, vote for us. They sound so good. But in Islamic doctrine, you can lie to advance your agenda. You don't have to be honest. If you deal with a Christian... Or a Jew, they've got to be honest, because we have the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. And if God's people are not following the Ten Commandments in the Bible, that's describing what they're doing and not prescribing what we should do. So the condition um, is laid out. What's going to happen? Well, you got to come back next time for me to share it with you. But just read the rest of the chapter. You know, this issue of fleeing to cities to be rescued, isn't that a pretty good description of Jesus? We are guilty in our trespasses and sins, and yet we can go to a city of refuge to be protected from wrath. That's sort of a description of Jesus Christ, who through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, stepped out of eternity into time 2,000 years ago to pay a price in his body for my sin that I could never pay. And what he tells me to do is to seek refuge in him, just like a city of refuge. Seek refuge in him by trusting in his provision, and that protects us from wrath. Just like a city of refuge protected the guilty from vigilantism, Jesus Christ allows for the guilty, which is us, to seek refuge in him because he bore the penalty for our sin in our place. The only thing he asks us to do is to receive what he has done as a free gift. And the only way to receive a free gift from God 
is to believe or trust in the one that he has sent. And that's the gospel. I just invite anybody within the sound of my voice that has never placed their faith in Christ alone for their salvation and the safekeeping of their soul, even as I am speaking, to place their faith in Jesus alone so as to be saved. It's not something you have to join a church to do, walk an aisle to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you hear the gospel. The Spirit convicts you of your need to do this. You believe that it is right and you respond to it by trusting in the Lord. We would invite anybody within the sound of my voice to do that. If it's something that you need more information on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Lord, we're grateful for sometimes in your words, some of the more darker, difficult to understand chapters. And yet these are here by divine design. There's something that you want us to learn from chapters like these. I pray you'll be with us as we complete this chapter. And then from there, be moving into completing the rest of the book of of Genesis. We pray that you'll teach us, encourage us, correct us, give us this understanding that we need so that we can be all you've called us to be in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Thank you, Pastor. Would you please rise as we conclude with God's great love for us and unconditional love, and can it be that we should gain an interest in that love? Mm-hmm.